Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Big, big podcast today, Rick. We are going to be talking on this very podcast with who? George Stephanopoulos, the guy who interviewed James Comey. I mean, by now a lot of have interviewed James Comey, but Stephanopoulos, our colleague George Stephanopoulos, had the first interview with Comey. Uh, on his book, and it was quite a blockbuster. So we'll be talking to him. But Rick, we've got a lot of news to get to. Yeah, we we truly do. There's there's a couple of things going on, John. And, and you're down uh, at Mar-a-Lago, where the president's spending a, a I couple mean, of full days. Full disclosure: I'm in West Palm Beach. I'm Sorry. not exactly directly on the grounds at Mar-a-Lago. Are you I'm golfing? Much, Are you any golf? I am. In, I am. I am in the almost as nice, uh, you know, Marriott and Okeechobee Boulevard. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Very nice. So the president is there. He's obviously meeting with the Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, and he's got North Korea on the mind. Uh, and it looks like uh, things are things are happening, including this this surprise trip. John, I mean, was was did anyone see this news coming when it uh, when it broke uh, yesterday that uh, that the CIA director had actually traveled to North Korea to meet with Kim Jong Un directly? This was genuinely one of those bombshell stories. I mean, we we, we see a lot of great stories broke and great reporters we do some here at abc news we hope to do as many as possible we've seen the new york times washington post we've seen our our rivals at other networks break some big stories this was a big one washington post breaks that mike pompeo the director of the cia the president's nominee to be secretary of state made a secret trip to north korea and met with Kim Jong-un himself, and no less did it over Easter weekend. Uh, really a, a, an amazing story. And Rick, I would say an indication of just how serious Donald Trump is about wanting to do this summit. He wants to meet face-to-face with Kim Jong-un. He wants to, he, he, he used to say that the ultimate deal is Middle East peace. Well, that's not looking too good. That's not really going anywhere. He wants to get a big, big, ultimate deal on the world stage outside of Middle East peace, this may be the toughest one to do. And for all of the, the chaos and the mixed messages and the miscommunications, and this is the week that Nikki Haley said there would be sanctions against Russia, and then the, the Trump, President Trump said not so fast, and he, he, she gets, she gets uh, dialed back on that. For all of this, we don't even have a sitting Secretary of State. Is it actually possible, John, that this could happen? I mean, could could this be the president that gets peace on the Korean Peninsula after after more than half a century? It's almost unfathomable given the, the day-to-day internal and external conflicts we're talking about. But it does seem like things are moving. And this meeting uh, involving Pompeo, the president's pick to be Secretary of State, would seem like this is a very serious priority. So let's make a couple of quick points about this. First of all, this is happening with a, uh, a a president who does not have a secretary of state, I and mean, he's got an acting secretary of state. He, he fired his secretary of state just as he was going right. into this. Uh, he fired his national security advisor just as he was going in. So the, the the you know the new one, John Bolton, I think, is still trying to find his way around the White House. He does not have uh, an ambassador in South Korea. There is not even at the State Department the, the job of the uh, of the envoy to to Korea. That is uh, not currently filled. Uh, this he, he's coming at this with no real experience in dealing with 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 issues uh, with nuclear issues or North Korea issues or any of this. And yet, 
I can tell you, Rick, that I have covered the North Korea nuclear crisis under George Bush, under Barack Obama, and saw some of the most talented and experienced and intelligent, intelligent foreign policy minds around, you know, the, uh, the, the Colin Powells, the Condi Rices, the John Kerry's, the, the Hillary Clinton's. And they, what did they, what success did they have? Nothing. Yeah, nothing. Nothing, nothing. to show for it. Complete, utter failure. The experts entirely failed on this. He got stronger. He got better. The nuclear program advanced. The missile program advanced. So I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I might say outside of nuclear war, it might be hard for him to do much worse than his predecessors. <laughs> I don't know. And, and it all comes, and there's some interesting details out there, John, um, that the president has been um, distracted, shall we say, uh, from uh, from the other news. You've got uh, a couple of other big things that are crashing down on the legal front at the same time. He is, of course, concerned about the possibility that uh, the, 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 the seizure of records involving his lawyer, Michael Cohen, uh, will provide significant results in any unpredictable direction. You've got Stormy Daniels out there uh, talking in, in new, new ways about uh, intimidation tactics she believes may have been engineered by Donald Trump around uh, the, the cover-up of their uh, alleged affair. And James Comey, who is out there uh, presenting himself as a potential witness for Robert Mueller in an obstruction probe. So the president has all of these other things going on, all of these potential legal uh, huge conflagrations out there at the same time that you see these diplomatic steps. It's just another one of these split screens in the Trump White House. So I want to get to some of what the president has said uh, here in Mar-a-Lago on the Korea issue. But, But to your point, One indicator that I've learned covering the Trump White House, one way to try to gauge what's on the president's mind is to, well, you could watch Fox and Friends. But aside from that, if you really want to gauge what he's thinking about and what is front and center for him, look at the Twitter feed. Yeah. So this morning, Rick, we had just three tweets. He's busy. He's in the middle of a summit with the Japanese, uh, you know, uh, uh, prime minister. Um, So... What's he tweeted about? Well, obviously, he tweeted about Mike Pompeo. He said the meeting went very smoothly uh, with Kim Jong-un, and a good relationship was formed. So very upbeat. You know, details of the summit are being worked out now, all of that. But there were two other tweets. Can you do, do you recall what they were, what the subjects were? In, John, it's your job as the, as the chief White House correspondent to be up to speed on the president's Twitter feed. Don't, don't throw this back on me. Okay, well, the first was about Stormy Daniels. That's how we started oh, okay. the day. Okay, okay, and and that wonderful sketch of the um, uh, <laughs> and to his credit, he retweeted somebody showing the sketch of the thug that allegedly threatened Stormy Daniels, and it does look a lot like Stormy Daniels. What is described here as her ex boyfriend. Anyway, I'll leave that one aside. But then we had the Pompeo tweet, and then we had this one. Slippery James Comey, the worst FBI director in history, was not fired because of the phony Russia investigation, where, by the way, there was no collusion, except by Dems. So that's interesting, because who was it that said that the Russia investigation was a factor? Do you remember? You know, it's some vague recollection. I mean, it it, it was out there at one point. Uh, Let's play. I heard somebody on TV. It was a rival network. I think this was on NBC. But I want to play it anyway. Can you play it, Trevor? Regardless of recommendation, I was going to fire Comey. Knowing 
there was no good time to do it. And in fact, when I decided to just do it, I said to myself, I said, you know, this Russia thing with Trump and Russia is a made up story. It's an excuse by the Democrats for having lost an election that they should have won. So I don't know, maybe he wasn't thinking about Russia after all, Rick. I guess. I, you know, if James Comey is looking to hold his credibility up against the president's, I think it's lines like that that probably help the Comey case more than anything. But the broader point that the president has decided uh, that he is at all out war with with James Comey, his fired FBI director, with so much of the Justice Department, with so much of the intelligence agencies, it, it is all it all makes for this remarkable show. It is the president who is the president and runs the Justice Department and continues to have these these simmering disputes with people on his employ. And then Comey enters, who, you know, then intriguing because he's been so long since he has spoken uh, and writes this book and does this media tour that that directly says the president of the United States is a liar, directly says it, uh, declares him to be unfit for office, morally unfit for office, and uh, and and offers him up to say, I'm I'm more than willing to, to, to tell what I tell what I need to tell as a witness against the president. But a tremendous way to move beyond all of that, obviously, is to go into this super high stakes effort to get a summit meeting with Kim Jong-un, something to, to accomplish something that none of his predecessors have been able to pull off. Uh, you know, assuming uh, there's there's several steps here. The meeting is just one. Obviously, it's what comes out of the meeting. But let's uh, take a listen to how uh the president is already seeing the role he is playing on this Korea issue. This is what he said here at Mar-a-Lago. We will uh, probably be, depending on the various meetings and uh, conversations, we'll be having meetings with Kim Jong-un very soon. It'll be, uh, that'll be taking place uh, probably in early June or a little before that, uh, assuming things go well. It's possible things won't go well or we won't have the meetings and we'll just continue to go along this very strong path that we've taken. Uh, but we will see what happens. And as the South Koreans are having their own meetings, this is what he said about that. Again, with the Prime Minister of Japan at his side. North Korea is coming along. South Korea is meeting and has plans to meet with North Korea to see if they can end the war. And they have my blessing on that. And they've been very generous that without us and without me in particular, I guess, you would have to say that they wouldn't be discussing anything, including the Olympics would have been a failure. Instead, it was a great success. Uh, They would have had a real problem. I mean, first of all, he gave the blessing, but I mean, those Olympics, those were the Trump Olympics. (laughs) The Trump Olympics. But, but, you know, but seriously, he is, this is a, an, an incredible thing we are seeing unfold before our eyes. First of all, this extraordinarily secret meeting of the CIA director directly with the leader of North Korea in North Korea. And now, Rick, I've been having conversations with various U.S. officials on this uh, about what this meeting would look like. And, And the most interesting initial question that has to be answered is, where do you hold the meeting? Right. Right. So, uh, I, so, so I've been told certain things have been ruled out. So he's not coming to the United States. Donald Trump is not going to go to North Korea. I've also told that the U.S. has ruled out doing it in China. We will not do it in China. That is not, in, in, in the White House view, a neutral territory. I am told that one of the ideas that was floated was doing it on a U.S. ship off the coast of North Korea. So he would have 
proximity to his country, but it would be, but but then I'm told there's there was no way that North Korea would go along with being on a U.S. warship in the waters off of uh, of uh, North Korea. Uh, also, you have to remember that Kim Jong Un, uh, like his father and like his grandfather, for that matter, they, they they do not tend to leave North Korea. So we know that since he became leader, Kim Jong Un has left. As far as we know, just once, it was a trip to China that secret was done under yeah. intense secrecy. So the idea of a public trip outside of the country is an incredibly risky play. What I'm told is there are concerns. The North Koreans have concerns. I don't know if they're expressed concerns, or we know this through intelligence, but whether or not he would be able to go back to his country after leaving. Would there be a coup? Would there be a move on the part of the United States to, you know, with him gone to, to do something? So, you know, there's a lot of paranoia. There's very little trust. It's hard to, for me to see where this meeting can take place unless it takes place right there in the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. What about Russia? Do they have any sites open? Moscow, Black Sea area? Vladivostok is not that far. You I mean, can, if you look at a map. You can uh, do it. Uh, so, John, I've, I've when, never been to Vladivostok, but uh, it seems like a good place to have a summit. For the next summit. I, I got to say, when, when, this, when the president first dropped word a couple of weeks ago that, uh, that he intended to, um, to have this meeting, that the invitation had been extended, accepted, I thought this was like one of those tweets that you forget about in a couple of days. I thought this was something that it's a combination of external forces and internal forces inside the administration would make clear this could never happen. Learning about the Pompeo visit, though, to have this, the sitting CIA director, the choice to be secretary of state, make this trip, it made me think this is for real. This is actually moving along. And yes, there's questions around logistics. But what does your gut tell you as of now, John? Is this meeting ever going to happen? I think it is uh, better than 50-50 that it happens, but there still is a significant chance that it does not. There's, there, there are just too many things that can derail this. But I've asked that same question that you just asked me of very senior advisors to the president. And the answer that I get is that it is likely to happen, that if it doesn't happen, it'll be because the North Koreans pull out, that 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 Trump is bound and determined to do this. And and to be clear, as you said, it'd be a major, major coup to even get that far. Now, it could all break down even there, and the questions about what happens if it doesn't succeed, what, how do yeah, you be to pick up the pieces? I mean, it's high risk. I mean, the, 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 the best day may be the day that it's announced. Yeah. Um, or, you know, the first handshake. But, yeah, uh, yeah. And what does that look like? Have you seen the photograph, by the way? You know, Bill Clinton went over as an ex-president, yes. you remember, um, and he was, met with Kim Jong-il. And, and the he photo frowned. Was, I mean, yeah, everybody is, like, doing their best to frown, not yes. to look like they're enjoying it. That's yes. right. You don't want to – because we know that the North Koreans use these meetings and these pictures as propaganda. It's valuable. It legitimizes Kim. If he's able to have this meeting, he walks away better for it, potentially, by having it as a, as a propaganda tool. Um, and that's one reason that, that other U.S. presidents have resisted a meeting like this, because they, they're afraid of walking into that trap. Uh, and and I, I'm, I'm curious, John, how this all interacts with the Iran nuclear deal, which the president looks like he wants to scrap. 
um, try to restart on that. Is that does that have any impact on on how Kim views his acquisition of nuclear weapons? You're looking around the world. You say, well, Gaddafi had uh, nuclear weapons. He gave them up, and he was still ousted from power. The Iranians signed a deal, uh, and and that still that doesn't leave him safe. Where does that leave the North Koreans when it comes to trusting the Americans? Well, Gaddafi's probably the the better concern because we saw what happened. I mean, the guy was overthrown and he was brutally murdered. <laughs> you know, yes. he was killed in cold blood on camera, and that has to uh, that, that, that that's not really a good. Uh, you know, here's what happened when you give up your <laughs> nuclear weapons. Next step. Um, the, I, I sense very little concern on the part of the administration about the effect of the Iran nuclear deal on this. Um, but you know, it's, you know, you, you got to figure it's, it's, it's part of the calculus here from, but, 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 but we don't, we don't know. And we have a hard enough time, Rick, trying to figure out what the white house is thinking about this. <laughs> the white house time. has a hard enough time figuring out what the white <laughs> yeah, house the thinks, way, yeah. trying to figure out what's going on in Pyongyang is, is, is something entirely. So Rick, we should take a quick break because we got George is actually waiting for us. He's here in the green room. Uh, you know, we have this tremendous green room here at uh, the Powerhouse Politics podcast. Either that, or he might be at home by his phone. I'm not sure, but um, but I know that I know that uh, that we have uh, George waiting for us. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will be talking to George Stephanopoulos about his extraordinary interview with James Comey. Brought to you by Indeed. Used by over 3 million businesses for hiring, where business owners and HR professionals can post job openings with screener questions, then sort, review, and communicate with candidates from an online dashboard. Learn more at Indeed.com slash hire. There's a lot coming at you right now. Turmoil, tweets, an insane amount of chatter. I'm Brad Milkey with ABC News, and I am here to throw you a lifeline. It's a new podcast called Start Here, where our experts give you on-the-ground access to the biggest stories of the day. We're going to give you some context, some clarity among the chaos. 20 minutes every weekday. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and start here. All right, and George is joining us now. George, five hours you spent with James Comey, and then... He came back for more on on Good Morning America. Yeah, he's 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 a man on a mission. There's no question about that. I think it goes with one of the overall points he's trying to make is that, uh, well, first of all, I think he wants to sell his book. But number two, I think you know he's trying to say that you know transparency, truthfulness, and honesty are all important values we have to uh, live by. And I think he's trying to to play that out uh, on this tour. And you know, one of the things he also said to me, you know, in 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 the run up to this is that um he wanted to be pressed. He thought that that actually helped him. Um and that he it wouldn't do him any good if he was just seen as kind of getting uh, fluffball treatment on uh, on on his book tour. I I I wonder. I still think he's got to be a little bit taken aback by uh the uh, sort of the the fury of some of the response, maybe not from President Trump, but some of the other quarters, although he sure had a taste of it uh, during the campaign. So he, he shouldn't have been too surprised. Well, it is striking that he's been attacked viciously, of course, by anybody associated with the Clinton campaign. He's obviously been attacked by anybody associated with Donald Trump, but even like the never Trump 
conservatives uh, seem to find him generally a little too self-righteous and too full of himself. Well, that was an, he's you know, been attacked on all quarters. Well, he, he's, get, he's getting a lot. Um, you know, he comes into the book tour with a fair amount of credibility. We had that poll that showed people by a fairly wide margin see him as more credible uh, than President Trump. Um, he's had did have this reputation inside the FBI, inside justice circles. I think one of his old nicknames was the Cardinal. You know, for a man who liked to be seen doing the right thing, um, in, in quotes. I mean, and you know, and he even writes a little bit about that uh, in 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 the book as well, and talks about it uh, in the interviews. So I think at some level he's got a pretty thick skin about that stuff. Um, but I also think that he thinks he says that Donald Trump is dangerous. I think he wants to find a way to remove Donald Trump from office. And he says as much. And then he it clearly pains him to think that he had a big role in electing Donald Trump. Um, I don't think he can admit that. I want to you asked him directly the impeachment question. We play that. Should Donald Trump be impeached? Impeachment is a is a question of law and fact and politics. You're a citizen. You have a judgment. Yeah, I'll tell you, I'll give you a strange answer. I hope not. Because I think impeaching and removing Donald Trump from office would let the American people off the hook. So what struck me about that answer was not that he, you know, comes out essentially against impeachment, but... But, you know, not really. I mean, it's it's kind of a tricky answer. I mean, and that's sort of what I was thinking, too. And, uh, you know, we have a follow-up that's in the whole transcript where... I said, but wait, what if, you know, what if Robert Mueller finds evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors of crimes? He said, oh, of course, of course, of course. I, I don't think he was trying to foreclose impeachment. I think he was trying to make that broader point that, you know, it'd be, it would be healthier for the system for this to be a decision made by everybody at the ballot box. But I don't think he was trying to rule out the possibility in any way or to say that even if evidence is fine, because remember the first part of that answer, it's a question of fact and law. I think the first part of the answer is if the if there are facts backing up illegal activity, I don't think he's going to be up out there saying no, no. Let's wait till the next election. Although I just found it striking that he made it so clear that he is going to be cheering on whoever is running against Donald well, Trump. Well, I, I completely to... I completely agree with that, especially when you think of, and it, it ends up being one of the big themes of the last few years, and then eventually, I guess, his career is that. It seemed like for his number one concern was keeping the FBI out of politics, but it turns out that his decisions plunged them even more deeply into politics and then ended up, through the series of events that were created, making him a more deeply political person. I found that striking in the, the book and the interview both as, as, as well, George. And I was, also, I was also struck by how quick he was to render judgment on uh, president's fitness for the office. This, take a listen to, to what he had to say on, on whether the president is fit to actually be president. Our president must embody respect and adhere to the values that are at the core of this country, the most important being truth. This president is not able to do that. He is morally unfit to be president. 
So two points on that, George. One is the the behavior that he points to in the book and throughout the interview. It, most of it, the vast majority of it, predates his firing. The thing that changed, the thing that precipitated him writing this book and going public, of course, was the firing itself. And secondly, the quickness that, that he comes to that judgment, to, to pronounce a moral unfitness, it seems like that, again, is a, a political decision of some sort. That's him deciding it's time to weigh in on politics. Yes, I think that's true. Now, but if you, when you read the whole book, there is a through line there. I mean, and, and I think he's fairly convincing on this. When you go back to the start of his career and he talks about uh, the case, I think it was of a young preacher, he's in North South Carolina, who ended up having to serve time in jail for uh, an instance of lying to an investigator, even though it turned out that it wasn't a very serious underlying offense. And that how that influenced his um, prosecution of the Martha Stewart case, him thinking back and saying, even though he thought in some ways it would be easier not to prosecute Martha Stewart, how could we let someone who's rich and powerful go for a crime like this when we prosecute the poor and the powerless? Uh, his, his observation that the life in the mafia begins with a lie. I do think that um, he believes deeply and in the value of truth-telling and how that's fundamental to our system of justice and our society, and that in his mind, and it's with a lot of evidence to back it up, uh, President Trump defiles that every day. One other thing, George, and you asked him about this uh, during the, the, the extended interview and then again on Good Morning America, the, the details that he recounts of President Trump's physical appearance, talks about uh, his strength or lack thereof, talks about his height, the size of his hands. Uh, this is just a little, a little piece of what, uh, what he told you in that original interview about, phys- about his physical look. He had impressively coiffed hair that looks to be all his. I confess I stared at it pretty closely. And my reaction was, must take a heck of a lot of time in the morning. His tie was too long as it always is. He looked slightly orange up close with small white um, half moons under his eyes, which I assume are from tanning goggles. And he told you on GMA that he was just trying to create a vivid image, that he wasn't trying to make fun of anyone. But, man, he does seem to, to make it pretty uh, yeah, personal when yeah, it comes yeah, to President yeah, Trump. Yeah, yeah, come on. And in fact, later on, I, I even said at that point, something like, he even clocked the size of his hands and he was a little <laughs> bit taken aback. Um, listen, well, it, he has nothing but disdain for President Trump. If you look at the standards, uh, the principles of what an, makes up an, an ethical leader in his book, it's almost as if he wrote them thinking that Trump um, represents the opposite in every point. Uh, he was fired by President Trump, and his entire family voted to defeat President Trump, and had James Comey voted, he probably would have voted against <laughs> Donald Trump. He 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 does. He thinks he's a dangerous man, uh, coarse man, unethical in his words, in the White House, and he, and he's dripping with disdain for him. I do wonder. He says that he would not change anything. He has no regrets about including that stuff. But um, my guess is that he didn't realize it would come off exactly as it has come off. I was struck by the way he described his firing. Take a listen to this. So you're in that private jet basically alone. What did you do? I drank red wine from a paper coffee cup and just looked out at the lights of the country I love so much as we flew home. That's it, the pinnacle of your professional career. It's yep. over. Yep. 
over in a flash. You saw the emotion on his face with that answer. Oh. He um, seemed angry, still bitter. He says he wasn't angry. He seems sad to me. He says he was surprised. But of course he is. Of course he is. Now, one of the raps against James Comey is that part, part of the reason he didn't speak up more forcefully in those meetings with the president where he had the sense, deep sense, that the president was crossing lines and doing, doing something wrong. So he wanted to keep that job. I think one of the interesting questions that flows from that is, what, where would we be today had the president not fired James Comey? Yeah. What would have happened to all those notes? Where would they have gone? You know, I even asked him the question at some point, did you flip over in your mind to being an FBI agent who was collecting evidence of a crime? And he said, in a sense, yes. He eventually thought that the president would be investigated and that this the his actions would come under and his encounters with James Comey would come under scrutiny, which would have led to, an, uh, in some ways, an even more tortured situation than we have right now. What do you make overall, George, of his of his credibility? You mentioned the poll and Americans find him much more credible than the president. When you asked about some of the, the statements that the president's contradicted, he basically says, look, you know, the president lies. Does is there anything in this in this accounting to your mind, looking at it and having read this and interviewed him? Do you come away thinking this is a man who is being honest uh, fundamentally about about the goings on? Are there questions in your mind after having studied it? No question. Listen, you can say a lot of things about James Comey, though his critics will say he's, and he'll even write himself that he's got a bit of an ego. Uh, he um, has some vanity. James Comey's not a liar. He just isn't. And he said everything that he said here under oath about his encounters with the president. I don't think an, an FBI director who's writing an entire book based on the idea that truth and telling the truth is at the heart of our legal system and society is, is going to tell lies on, th- on on big things. Now, that doesn't mean that all his answers are satisfactory or that, or that people will, will come away, you know, agreeing that he had no choice, for example, on whether to do that press conference in July of, of 2016 or release the letter in October. But I don't think he's a liar, no. He's obviously been close to Robert Mueller for a long, long time. I mean, I think that you know, in some ways, uh, he's a protege of Mueller's. And what he says in his book and what he said in his interviews with you, you know, we're hearing his opinion. We're hearing how he how he assesses all of this stuff. To me, the, the, the thing that would make this most significant is if we think in some way Comey is channeling Mueller, that these two men kind of look at the world in the same way. What, what, what's your sense on that? Do you think we're in some ways hearing an assessment that it would be shared by Robert Mueller? Uh, yes and no. I think you know the big difference, obviously, is that while they share a lot of tra- traits, um, James Comey has always been a little bit more public and showy than Robert Mueller. Um, right. But in terms of well, what, what do we know? We know that we know that Mueller has all the information that Comey has 
given in public and given to the Senate, probably even more. Um, we know that Mueller is a, you know, uh, a career law enforcement guy who does things by the book and who cares about the same underlying values and institutions that James Comey cares about. We know that. What we don't fully know is what other evidence he's collected. I tend to think from, you know, talking to a lot of people around this case that whatever it is, it's a lot more than we think. And that every witness I've spoken with who's been able to talk about their encounters with the Mueller team comes away saying, boy, they knew a lot more than I expected. Things that surprised me. Um, so uh, I think generally, yes. Um, what final judgments we'll be able to make, I don't, I don't know yet. But I, I think generally uh, that the concerns that Comey raises are certainly concerns that Mueller share, would share if he were able to nail, them, nail down the evidence to back them all up. What's your sense, George, of what the end game is here? You mentioned selling books. Clearly, that's off and running as the book is released. It's, it, it's a runaway bestseller. Uh, he, he's got some other irons in the fire in the in in in, in the world of academia. But where where do you see James Comey going from here? It seems like he's relishing the opportunity, the possibility that he'd be a witness against President Trump. But even beyond that, where does where does history? My place sense is he doesn't Comey? know. I think that I think that this has to play itself out first. I mean, I think. You know, for the next year or so, and he told me this, that he's going to finish the book tour. He'll continue to speak. Um, he'll teach at William and Mary and maybe some more at Howard as well. And that's going to be his professional life for the next year or two. What happens if there's, uh, you know, after the Mueller report, as we head into the next election, I don't know. When I, when I asked him this morning on GMA, would you like to be uh, reappointed uh, FBI director under another president? He didn't say no. I think he knows it's not likely to happen, but he didn't say yeah. no. Yeah. Well, fascinating. And, uh, I mean, the, the, the interview, the hour special, um, this uh, this had to be George this is the longest interview I've ever done. Have you ever said Oh, no question it's the longest. And, yeah, definitely the most intense. We look forward to the next one. Thank you, George. Thank you, guys. Take care. Thanks, George. Bye-bye. Yeah, that was, that's intense, man. This was also, uh, you know, this was the most sought-after interview in a long time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and you, knew, you knew from the beginning on all of this that this was going to be a moment. When James Comey decided to break his silence, he hadn't spoken publicly uh, since his congressional testimony last summer, that it was going to be a big deal. It was going to be a, a bombshell moment. And uh, he teased little little, little photos of himself over, the, over Instagram and on Twitter over time, but he was really silent for a very long time. And uh, there was a sense in, in the White House and beyond that they couldn't control really what, what Comey is going to say is one of those moments where he is in control. And I think we're going to see play out now because Comey isn't done. He's going to be all over the place in, in other media outside of ABC News now over the uh, ensuing days and weeks. He is going to be pressed on the news of the day and, uh, and, and engaged in a, a pretty fierce firing battle with, with President Trump himself, who has been pre-butting it uh, all along the way. He's, he obviously has strong feelings about uh, James Comey, just like James Comey has strong feelings about him. And it will be interesting to see what happens to Comey's credibility at the end of this. George cited the fact that the polls show that, you know, Comey's credibility is pretty high uh, among among American voters. Uh, coming through this kind of hand-to-hand -hand combat, 
it'll be interesting. Does it go down with the attacks or does he maintain his credibility because he now has a chance to answer the attacks? I mean, the attacks have been out there. And, you know? and, and one thing I was struck by, John, in, in the book is that there's enough there for both sides to remember why they have loved and hated James Comey. And it, it, whatever your political persuasion is, you felt both emotions toward James Comey if you had a rooting interest in, in the last presidential election uh, and, the, and in the aftermath. And it's all out there. And, you know, for all of the, the attacks he's had with the Trump, from the Trump side, the, the, the attacks he's had from the Clinton side is, have been pretty fierce as well. And as George said, not a very satisfactory set of explanations when you add it all up. I think the most compelling thing he offers, though, is that he's, he's telling it from his point of view. And when you consider these things in, in individual contexts and you take his word uh, at face value about the, the facts that were before him, it's understandable, if not to- totally excusable every step of his behavior. You can understand why he made the decisions he made. That's, I think, what he's, what he's trying to achieve. Okay, so before we go, a uh, quick question t- uh, to you, Rick. Go for it. Does James Comey ever run for office? I think not. I, I think not. I-, I don't think he has a a base in either party. I think he will be a very sought-after endorsement. I can imagine that there will be many candidates, um, maybe even presidential candidates, who seek out uh, the-, the stamp of approval from James Comey. And if he wants to play at that level of politics, then I can see it. I, I-, I- Reading this book, Vice watching the rollout, nominee, I don't talent. see how... I don't see how he he lives in either party, and uh, he tapped as an attorney general. And I, I, I just can't imagine. I, I in, in in the current political climate, things would have to be so vastly different, John, to to even think about a confirmation vote. Uh, there's such harsh feelings in both parties about uh, about his judgment, about his conduct. Uh, even if he's got respect from a lot of quarters, I I don't see him getting back in the political arena in that way. I don't. What do you think? You you, you see it happening? Uh. He seems like a guy who wants vindication, who wants to to see this through, and I could see the allure of of getting back into the into the public arena because it's one thing to be out there doing interviews, writing books, um, you know, being kind of a, a, a public intellectual on this, but you could see the bitterness when he answered that question about his career being gone in an instant. I don't know. He probably doesn't run for office. He's probably not named to a, a prominent position in, in a future administration. I agree with you on that. But I, but, but I think that bug is going to be there, and I wouldn't rule it out entirely. That is all the time that we have for our team, Trevor Hastings, Angie Yak, Avery Miller. We'll be back next week.